It is Friday, April 17th, 2020, and coming up, we'll announce the winner of the Now That's What I Call Madness Volume 1. Thanks for your votes on Twitter. We will also dive into Paul McCartney had some interesting comments on the Howard Stern Show about the age-old rivalry between the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. Plus, we'll dive into the WNBA draft with Howard Megdal of High Post Tubes. You won't want to miss it. This is The Tune-Up. Welcome on into the show. My name is Danny Gallagher, and I'm joined by the snare cam pan provocateur. He's certainly the sexiest man in Jersey City, maybe even all New Jersey. It's Benny Horowitz. <laughs> you make it up? Ask, and you shall receive. <laughs> Here, let me explain something to you. Something really funny happened on our podcast last week that I need to, I need to lay the groundwork for you. Yeah. So I know I may come off a certain way. I'm a very insecure man, oh. especially about the way I look. Oh. So Aren't we all? I had no idea you made a Bruce Springsteen reference <laughs> until the middle of the show when you were like, hey, I was just making a Bruce Springsteen reference. I'm like, oh, that makes a lot more sense. But if you listen back to last week's episode, you can tell like the first 10 minutes. You are I'm not a little, having it. I'm a little butthurt and I wasn't feeling good about myself. Because <laughs> I so made I, normal jokes and you were just like dirt. I was like, all right. I, this, this I wish I understood the reference. It would have saved me. Like ten minutes of grief. <laughs> That's but, funny. So, so I'm glad we cleared that up, oh my and God. I'm glad you made amends yes. by calling me beautiful. I appreciate it. <laughs> Move over, Idris Elba, Benny Horowitz yeah. in town. <laughs> Danny, let me ask you something. What's up? So, uh, this has been coming up with some people. Are you breaking everything in your house by any chance? Am I? Have 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 people yeah. brought this up to you that I'm breaking stuff in my house? No, no, not you specifically, oh. but people. <laughs> But people, no, you have you haven't had this issue. I mean, okay. we've been doing so many pods and stuff like that. I really haven't had time during this quarantine to breathe. But you're just in the closet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The entire I'll spend entire quarantine in my bunker here. I'll tell you, man, we are ripping through shit <laughs> so hard. And me and my wife are like getting. Into- I'm like, you're breaking this. I'm breaking this. What's wrong with us? We're so <laughs> foolish. We're really being hard on ourselves. And then we talk to a couple more people. They're like, are you a uh- you fucking breaking everything in your house too? And we're like, yeah. Are you what's going on? So I, I think something's at work here. Like, like I don't think people have ever spent this much time in their homes and things that just aren't accustomed to that much wear and tear and things like that are, are really going quick. We need to all be in padded rooms right now. Yeah, this is a hundred percent the most time I've ever spent in not to mention my house, but Jersey City on the whole. You know, I'm always in like New York or going up to uh, Connecticut for a bunch of different stuff. To spending like almost a month in Jersey City, I love the place. But I mean, like, I need to roam. I need to stretch my legs. You get a little ripe. <laughs> yeah, just, a little bit. You're just smelling like tomato sauce <laughs> and feta cheese. The things that Jersey City smells. I can like. only eat so much, so much Wonder Bagel and Dame's coffee. <laughs> oh fuck you though, dude! I want a Wonder Bagel so bad. <laughs> I'd kill a man for a Wonder Bagel. All right, before we get into anything else today, Benny, we have a champion. Our month-long sojourn into the albums of everybody's youth of all time. Now, that's what I call Madness Volume 1. We have a champion. Any guesses on who it is, Benny? Ha! Hmm. (laughs) I wonder. Who could it be? 
from New Jersey, perhaps? Uh, perhaps, perhaps. Maybe clad in blue jeans? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Maybe uh, does, you know, shoots music videos in Asbury Park and occasionally Hoboken. That's right. Born to Run is your, now that's what I call Madness Volume no 1 champion. By a lopsided margin. I I thought that uh, this was going to be a little closer, you know, because London Calling did so well in this tournament. Born to Run did so well in this tournament. But Born to Run, 83% of the vote. London Calling, 17%. I think, uh, I think Brian's endorsement kind of did a little wonder in this competition, no? I mean, I got to be honest with you. Brian, he he changed my mind in five minutes. You know what I mean? Like, he changed his own like, mind in that moment. Yeah, exactly. I was looking to go into that. You know, I'm like, oh, you know, it's the clash. I'm going to give my, my punk rock points a couple extra points and, you know, stay with them. And, and by the end, I'm like, yeah, he's right. I can't. I can't. I can't do it. So I, I think it's pretty hilarious that between uh, – the final matchup in Sergeant Pepper's um, Born to Run won by what about one hundred seventy percent to thirty percent in the end. So I think th- it was probably a prefixed tournament. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but anyway, I enjoyed the ride. What a fun experience! I think we got to uh, throw some new jacks into yeah. the top thirty-two list that might start making their way. Maybe in a few years, we can call ourselves. Pioneers, Denny. <laughs> Maybe for, who knows? For adding things like Lauren Hill and uh what were some other nice nice new jacks we, we had, had in the mix? Uh, Nas Ilmatic. Nas Ilmatic, we had Public Enemy, Nation of Millions. Um we had Tupac, we had did we have Biggie in there? I th- I think we did. I'm doing this all we, the Yeah, time. we we had Biggie. We kicked out Jay Z for Biggie. Oh yeah, yeah. Because yeah. because obviously, <laughs> you know, you gotta pay, pay respects. But uh just some quick other numbers here because we love numbers just about three thousand votes in total on this tournament just love that just just incredible interaction thank you everybody to voting um and if you're new to the pod thanks stick around have a beer it's a fun time yeah so benny any final thoughts before we uh put now that's what i call madness volume one officially on vinyl yeah, do same as you. I want to thank everyone for being involved and and uh, going through the tournament with us. I want to make one thing clear. <laughs> well, first, uh, I mean, we didn't talk. Born to Run was a five seed, was yeah, it not? Born to Run was so, the most so, disrespected I mean, five seed I've ever seen. Yeah, so so the fact that a five seed ran through is remarkable, <laughs> anyway. But I know every step of the way here, I was usually voting against Born to Run. I want to be clear on one thing, okay? <laughs> to save my ass here a little bit is that. I was I was I was voting for the spirit of competition here. You know what I mean? I was trying to make sure that that the other guy won a little bit and and could walk home with their chin high because I knew Bruce was in such a strong uh sh- strong position to run with this tournament. It's almost like before you moved to Jersey City, there was a a small Egyptian pizza place that no one ever went to, you know? Yeah. And and I always walked by these people. They always had one just sad pie sitting out on the counter. And about once every two weeks, I had to go in and get a pity slice, oh. you know? So so me voting against Bruce every time, knowing he was going to win this tournament, was me trying to throw the bone to the competitor, you know? Of these three things, which is the worst pity? Pity sex, pity slice, or pity vote? Which one's the worst? 
<laughs> I'd say pity sex probably has has the most implications there for sure. <laughs> All right, Benny. So this Friday, you know, we're gonna try to break in a new segment that we're gonna try to do on Fridays. It's called This Date in Music History. I don't know if people know this though. Do, do people know that that's my drumming on the intro and outro? I mean that. It- I went into a studio and played some funk for my friend, and we pieced that together. We should tell people that, maybe. It's a song that no one's ever heard that I don't know how they would assume, unless people just assume that I'm just ripping stuff off YouTube and just screwing over (laughs) artists. Imagine if that was the case. Imagine if Benny's just out here talking about, yeah, the labels and everyone's screwing over artists, and then I'm just out here taking beats for our podcast off of YouTube. Hey, man, I've been been alive a long time. (laughs) Wouldn't shock me that much. (laughs) All right, so we're trying to do this new segment here. It's kind of off the rails, which is kind of how how we like it. It's called This Day in Music History. Benny and I will give an event that we picked that happened this day in music history. Simple enough. Didn't really have to explain it. Benny, what's yours? All right, so since this is the inaugural Inaugural. (laughs) uh, event here, I'm going to have to pick two. Yeah. I thought this was going to be easy. You presented this to me, and I'm like, oh, what a great idea. There can't be that much that happened in different days. And I happened to find two in our inaugural one here that mean a lot to me, okay? First, 1974, April 16th, Queen, a band very near and dear to my heart, held its first U.S. concert randomly at Regis College in Denver, Colorado. So that's a funny part of it anyway. (laughs) But – uh. That I can't believe I I just have a hard time imagining a band like Queen with all of its majesty and theatrics and just everything, all that gusto behind Queen, just at a first show in Denver, Colorado at a small local college. That's fucking cool. And then nine years later in Dover, New Jersey, which no one knows, way up north. That's right. It's up, up by where I grew up. Up in your in your turf, might <laughs> for someone where I'm from, might as well be upstate New York. <laughs> Kirk Hammett played his first show with the Mighty Metallica. Crazy in 1983 in Dover, New Jersey, Damn. on this day. Which, of course, I think it is a misconception of Metallica that people see Kirk Hammett's hair and stuff, and they think he's the guy ripping the solos. It's Hetfield, man. <laughs> he's the one ripping the solos, but. That being said, Kirk Hammett, much respect. I got to meet him a couple times. He was very sweet. Wow. How'd that all happen? Uh, Well, randomly, an old manager I had uh, was the one who brokered the Lou Reed Metallica record because he was Lou Reed's manager. And uh, because of that, there was a loose affiliation with Metallica. And Gaslight Anthem got to open three shows for Soundgarden in Europe. And Metallica happened to be in Europe at the same time. They're friends. They cruised by the show and got to meet a couple of them. I'll give you my This What Happened in Music this week. Uh, 1993, David Lee Roth was arrested in New York's Washington Square Park for allegedly buying a bag of weed for 10 bucks. God bless David Lee Roth. Oh, that's, (laughs) you know what I love about that story? Is that I did the exact same thing about two years later. I started going to Washington Square Park. To buy creepy dime bags that were sprayed with all sorts of shit. Funny part about that, I can give you some insight, is if a kid that looked like me put that together, uh, walked into Washington Square Park, you were literally rushed by like 
20 different guys offering you different product at different deals. It was like, it was like a bonanza out there for oh real. Gosh. So I'm David Lee. I don't even know how he got caught out there. It must've been a random sweep. Oh yeah, I'm sure. Cause David Lee Roth in 1993 didn't stand out at all. I mean, you would have thought just, he would have sent a, a tour manager yeah, right. out or something. Maybe it was like the one night he's like, you know what, man, I just want to be a normal person again and go out and look for weed, you know? And then my second story here kind of dives into our first topic of the day. On this day in 1964, the Beatles filmed the chase scene of Hard Day's Night and ah. Notting Hill Gate in the area of London. So pretty cool stuff there. Very cool. All right, Benny, some music news to get us going here today. Paul McCartney was on the Howard Stern show this past week because apparently Howard's just calling all of his friends that are musicians and are, that are remotely interesting to come on the show, which, you know, honestly, that's kind of what we've been doing, too, so we can't even call <laughs> But Paul McCartney went on the Howard Stern show, and he talked about the age-old controversy between the Beatles versus the Rolling Stones and who's better, and he gave, he gave all the respect that he could to the Rolling Stones but gave his team the boost. Now, Ben... <laughs> I want to pivot this question to you. Wait on me. If, say, you went on, I don't know, a podcast, and someone yeah. asked, who's the better band? Gaslight Anthem, Bouncing Souls. you got to stick up for your boys, right? Uh, at this point in my career, the fact that there's never been tension at all <laughs> between Gaslight and Bouncing Souls, <laughs> like we've never taken each other's audiences We've never had any kind of beef. We just met each other and liked each other, and it's always been cool. Um, honestly, I wouldn't go near that question. Uh, and to me, like in the current context, I'd probably say the Bouncing Souls like 10 times out of 10 and just let other people make the decision. Uh, but that being said, I've never been knighted. <laughs> You know, I mean... so maybe the day somebody calls me sir and gives me a qualification to put me at the round table, then I'll be a little more pompous about my answer. But I mean, as you said, McCartney gave every chance he could to give the Rolling Stones credit. Right. He he called them a great band. He called them great people. He sang their praises over and over. But in the end, did say that they were better. <laughs> The thing I liked about it is he actually pinpointed why, which I liked. And and that's and you can't argue with anything he said. The fact that uh and we've talked about this on the show even recently, there's something about having more than one singer in a band. The Beatles uniquely had four. Yeah. And they had three who could all write some of the best rock and roll songs that have been penned. So that's just like one of those unique combinations of people that you just Everybody knows is special, including the Rolling Stones. And I bet if you ask the Rolling Stones, they would probably say pretty close to the same thing these days. The one thing about McCartney's take I didn't think was totally accurate was that the Beatles had more of a spanning sound and the Rolling Stones were just kind of blues rock. And that was their thing. The Stones did a lot of stuff that could start to dance outside of blues rock. And I don't think that's a fair characterization. But I also think that McCartney answered well. Uh, I don't think he added too much like drama into the mix because he was so nice about it. You know the way I took this? This felt like Yankees-Mets to me, <laughs> right? It's like Paul McCartney has never actually been threatened by the Rolling Stones. Right. 
because every time the Rolling Stones were following their lead, doing a record that was kind of like theirs, doing the tour right after them, you know, doing all the th- the Rolling Stones were, you know, they were biting them. They're on their dick a little bit. And but the Beatles were still number one when that was happening. They were the biggest band in the world. So I think in that context, you might have had Rolling Stones fans who hated the Beatles. But I think you had Beatles fans who were just a little more dismissive of the Rolling Stones. Mm. The same way a Yankees fan, except for one season in the last 50, has been never really threatened by the Mets. We kind of don't, you know, like they're fine. And they can talk all the shit they want and we'll just sit on the rings and just feel good about it. And and they don't. They're angry, you know. So I, I think there's something like that going on here. Um, I did love the Howard Stern interview, mm. though. He really gets great questions, and I liked uh, how he how he asked very straight up why the Beatles didn't continue uh, without John Lennon afterwards. And I could see from a fan's perspective, you're like, okay, you have Paul McCartney and George Harrison, the same band, who went on to write some of the greatest songs, you know, in history after the Beatles. Why couldn't they have stayed the Beatles? And the Beatles continue to be the Beatles. And that's always, to me, one of those things that it's kind of a question that will only get asked by someone who doesn't play music. And this isn't a diss to Howard Stern. It's a completely fair question and actually really interesting to think about. But the way Paul answered, it wasn't a matter of the fact that Paul McCartney couldn't write songs, John Lennon couldn't write songs, and they couldn't do it together. Excuse me, George Harrison uh, wrote songs and they couldn't do it together. It was about... It's about chemistry. Your lead singer was shot and killed. You know what I mean? He was one of the most famous guys in the world. They had all sorts of tension and back and forth and weird things leading up to these points. It's not just like something's like, oh, all right, let's go ahead and replace John. And the same beautiful songs we wrote in our solo career are going to come out in the Beatles. You just don't know, man. And, you know, if Paul and George's lives hadn't gone the way they went after the Beatles, then maybe they don't write those songs in the first place. So it's impossible to know. And I don't know, would you want to see a different version of the Beatles still playing the, playing some theater in Las Vegas no. for two months in a row right now, which is probably what have been happening. I'm good on that, you know? So I think there's something to be said in like culture with like these people that were like icons and stuff like that to get out like while it's like still great. And stuff like that. We've talked about uh, how, like, the uh, police came back and it was like a long time. And then they were like back and people were like, oh, wow, this is amazing. Absence always makes the heart grow fonder. Well, not always, but absence makes the heart grow fonder. And, you know, I think that what if is always what captivates people about this. But I did want to say something else in this Rolling Stones Beatles debate. Yes, yes. I'm pretty sure that with. I'd say there's a decent amount of people under the age of 40 that just kind of missed the whole Rolling Stones wave. I mean, like, I listen to to the Stones, but I'm not, like, crazy about it. There's people that will defend that band to the end. The Beatles, on the other hand, for some reason, like, millennials freaking adore them, almost like the people that listened to it when they came out. I mean... I'll go with Paul McCartney here. It's because yeah. they're a better fucking band. I mean, it's just like kind of obvious. But I mean, I've always thought about the Rolling Stones in the way that like they never stopped. Yeah. They got huge when they were kids. 
they kept going. They've written so many records and so many songs and been playing so long with every single one having hyper focus on it. To me, the Rolling Stones won by amassing content. And for every 10 to 12 average songs they wrote on a record, there's one that you remember. And because of that, they might have compiled an equal number of hits or something like that, but it certainly doesn't make them a more impactful band. It's almost how like David Lynch writes his movies, you know, by like throwing a dartboard at uh throwing a dart at topics and just seeing what comes up. Yeah. yeah. All right, Benny, we've reached the halfway point of the podcast, which means it's time for our dollar slice takes. So, you know, one thing that's become apparent to me during the pandemic is that, I mean, we are more reliant on the Internet than we've ever been in our lives. Our phones, our computers, even our TVs are the Internet now. Uh, It's just a matter of time before there's a disruption. Something has to happen at some point. It's going to shake people and remember that you got to live off the Internet. That being said, I was a pizza delivery man in the 90s with a glove box filled with maps. And I am the map man. I love a map. I can read a map. What I'm going to do is I'm going to make a bunch of local maps. I'm going to be the map man. When the Internet goes down and in classless classic American capitalistic fashion, I'm going to hoard these maps and I'm going to sell them to all the lost humans who are off their phones and have no idea where the fuck they're going. If that doesn't work, I'm old enough to know how to get everywhere. I started driving before phones, so I could also offer tours. But that's my dollar slice. Maybe this will finally allow me to get my jacuzzi hot tub by selling hard maps when everybody doesn't have the internet. I can't wait till we play the clip after this of Benny from like a month ago killing the kid who stashed all the hand sanitizer. (laughs) Oh, dude. (laughs) Well, you should know that at the end of my notes, I wrote, or I'd be foolish, give all the maps away, be robbed and die unknown, which is probably the more likely scenario for a guy like me. So take it how you want. You've accomplished more in your life than I think most people ever. (laughs) I'm just saying, if anybody's listened to me, and garnered the nature of my personality, they know I'm bullshitting when I say I'm going to sell the maps. I'm going to be giving them away, doing everything the dumb way and not protecting myself. That's the classic way I like to do things. Like Rand McNally in 2003, it's Benny Horowitz. That's right. What's up? Hit me up for directs. I I miss that, though, Denny. I don't know if you're too young to remember this. No, I pulled out the maps. But the days of, like... You know what I really like that I miss what? is when someone comes up to me or drives up to me being like, hey, do you happen to know how to get to like Route 27 from here? You know, and I always used to be the guy that's like, yeah, 18 South to this road, to this road, second light, make a right. You're good. And I felt really cool about that. Yeah. I don't get to do that anymore. You know, my Dallas list take of the week kind of builds off what we talked about with Brian with the IG live and stuff like that. I think if Facebook were truly the corporate overlords that we all believe that they are, that they would develop a, or not even come up with, but steal Patreon, steal that technology, and have a part of Instagram where you have to pay to access certain IG lives. What do you think? Uh, It sounds like 
uh, one of those hundred dollar slice takes because <laughs> sounds like it's definitely going to happen. <laughs> There's no way this content staying free. You know what I could see being the more so the big gap that's happening right now is the fact that people have the access to record these things. They have the access to let people see them, but they don't have the access to keep them. So I could see Instagram opening up an archival part of their service. If you pay like an extra 10 bucks, you get another side of your page that can archive these interviews and store them and have them for you for later dates. So people aren't uploading to YouTube and such. Uh, That seems pretty realistic to me. But aren't they already doing that? Can't you pay for certain things on those business accounts? Not that I know of. Heck, maybe that's why we haven't grown the Instagram account. I'm not hoarding over the cash to Mark Zuckerberg. Jeez Louise. Danny, listen, you're the young one. If you ever want this stuff to happen, you got to do it. I just got to (laughs) pay. That's like our whole conversation about paying for followers. You're like, if you ever do it, don't tell me. Listen, I chiseled my notes in stone <laughs> doing this episode, okay? That's how that's how archaic I am. Oh, my gosh. All right, coming up after a short musical interlude, it is Howard Mendel of the High Post Tubes, phenomenal NBA, WNBA reporter. He's coming up to talk to us about the WNBA draft happening tonight. We are now joined by a man who... Some may call the Woj of the WNBA. He is Howard Megdal, High Post Hoops. Howard, what's up, man? Oh, man, everything is up. It's the day before the draft. That's yeah, right. so kind of take Crazy me in, inside this for you. What's it like? Are you getting tips on anything? Are you going to kind of release the picks of the draft before they happen tomorrow night? That's a good question. I, it's a tough thing because I'm, I'm covering the draft. Uh, I'm going to be writing about it for the Times. Uh, I'm going to have to... Uh, oversee editing um, and making sure that, you know, we've got 12 different teams to cover over at Hypo Soup. So we're going to have stories about on involving all of them. And then, you know, obviously I'll do what I always do, which is I'll be talking to everyone in the league, you know, coaches and GMs and seeing who's doing what and why. And as we go, it's going to be interesting because everyone's going to be doing it from the comfort of their own homes. So, you know, the, the flow of information is going to be different than it's ever been before. So when you're doing that and, and you're trying to do this from home, like normally when, when you're in the room, there's the excitement, there, there's all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how do you anticipate it's going to be different for you? For me, I guess it'll be a little bit easier in the sense that, okay, so normal draft night, the player gets picked. Suddenly the player is going through what you'd call essentially a car wash of various interviews, you know, on social media and they're doing different things and you need to make sure you get that player. You also need to be aware in real time while you're standing in, say, a corner of the Nike headquarters, which is where we've been the last couple of years. Who's being picked? Is there a trade involved in being able to nail down what the trade is, how it's happening and what the impact is on the draft and being able to make sure coverage is all set. You know, if I have a writer who's covering a particular team, making sure that writer knows what's going on as well. And trying to be able to get it first is, of course, a key part of covering the league's draft as well. So it's a little bit of everything. It's a little bit easier to be doing that. I'll be sitting in my home office. I'll be, you know, I have the draft on TV. I'm not necessarily going to have to go to run to get the position for wherever Sabrina Ionescu is on the off chance she's the number one pick. (laughs) <laughs> and figure things out from there. 
so logistically, I think it will be easier as long as, you know, let's say the Zoom calls aren't taken over by someone hostile. <laughs> We're working on it. I have something I hope you could provide a little insight on. So I know during a, a standard draft, the outfits are a big mm. deal, you know, mm-hmm. especially in the NBA. I'm sure the NBA, uh, WNBA is also uh, held to that. You want to know who I'm wearing? I, I, I get that. <laughs> I would like that. Oh, yeah. I get that a lot. Yeah. Zero Wang? Going to be a, a jeans and uh, some WNBA based t-shirt. I haven't made a final. I'm going to talk to my stylist tonight, who's my wife, and uh, get a decision on that. And out of the potential top 10 picks, who do you think is going to bring it the most gear wise? Like, I, I just don't want to see 10 people in, in jeans. Like, who's going to bring it? You won't. You won't. Uh, that, that's a very hard thing for me. You know, I do a <laughs> lot of deep dives into the stats, and I'm watching a lot of film, but I'm not necessarily going into the outfit side of things. I did have the pleasure last year of I, I was doing a draft day story following Enrique Agumbawale around, and that included the finalizing of her outfit with her agent, the great Aaron Kane of Octagon. And so I had the opportunity to watch that process happen in real time. Uh, So I know the process was a little different this time around. You know, none of us were able to go to an express a few hours beforehand (laughs) and try different options. So uh, they will rise to the occasion, as I know they will, once they get to the league as well. Who would you deem like the Russell Westbrook of the WNBA? Like who's... Mm -hmm. Who's the hawk? Who's the fashion that's, hawk? That's a real challenge. That's hard for me. And and, and I don't speak from expertise on this, but I can tell you, <laughs> you know, Sinead Womake always brings it. Sinead yes. Womake is always dedicated to making sure her outfit is just right for the moment. But you go back to these all-star games, and, and you know, you should talk to Ari Chambers about this over at Bleacher <laughs> Report because she has the expertise. She, is, she knows everything about everything. But the WNBA all-star game, orange carpet, I mean – no one <laughs> mailed it in. It, it is it is really a deeply competitive thing. And so uh, I expect more of the same from the players entering the draft. Well, maybe that the Liberty now changed their logo. We'll get rid of the orange. Maybe so. I, I like the new logo. I, listen, I, I love the old one, but, you know, I like I like the black and the new logo. It feels very 2020. The Liberty are set up in all these different ways. Yeah. Very, I, it, only a global p- pandemic could get in their way. I'm sure that yeah, won't happen. Until, until they changed that logo, I had had no idea that they were the uh, second running longest uh, sports logo in, in mm-hmm. professional sports these days behind the Chicago Bulls. My fear is for Maddie because we have not seen Maddie as a prominent part of the changeover. And, you know, Maddie is an original mascot. But Maddie was short for Madison Square Garden, and they no longer right. play there. And so we'll have to see Maddie. You want to talk about somebody who brought it every time. Maddie, <laughs> at every game, brought it every time. And so just the idea that there might be a different mascot, no mascot. You know, the Brooklyn Nets don't have a good history with the mascot. I know. You remember the Brooklyn I know Nets? I they very do have well. a good one when they're in New Jersey with Sly. Listen, I've oh, been, yeah, but, I've but been in Brooklyn a campaign. Children. I've been in a campaign with my friends Howard Beck, the <laughs> guy I buy my Nets tickets from. I've been tweeting at the Nets for years with pictures of me and Sly the Fox when I was a kid. The Brooklyn Knight was just a failed disaster. They never replaced it. Ever since they got rid of the Brooklyn Knight, I've been attempting to get someone's ear to bring mm-hmm. Sly the Fox to Brooklyn. 
hasn't happened yet. It really awesome. Oh, we got Mr. Whammy. That was it. Mr. Oh, and, and I've written about Mr. Whammy and his, of course, longstanding feud with LeBron James. But listen, if, if Howard Becker, as I call him, OG Howard, <laughs> is not able to get it done. No, I don't think the rest of us have a chance. I don't know if I fully got him on board yet. I might have to have another pitch oh, that's lunch. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, he's got more time now because there are no games. So normally he'd be covering the playoffs. Yeah, I don't think he's looking to burn his uh, interpersonal NBA bridges on behalf of <laughs> me bringing back Sly the Fox. That's too bad. That is too bad. <laughs> oh, man. Well, let's get into this deal from yesterday. Tina Charles on her way to the defending champion Washington Mystics joins Alina Deladon in what Twitter has all already declared uh, the Mystics the WNBA champion for next season. But it's one thing to win the offseason. But let's look at it from the Liberty <clears throat> perspective first. Uh, they're setting up for a, a draft where they can bring in uh, Sabrina Ionescu to pretty much take over the cha- uh, franchise, be a, a game changer. How do you grade this deal for the Liberty and how do you grade it for the Mystics? Well, you, you've got to grade it in a different way than just one-to-one and all right, what was, what did the Liberty get in return for Tina Charles? Is that of equal value? Tina Charles was looking for a fresh start. Tina Charles had said, Washington is where she wants to go. There's no leverage in that instance. And so that's a very different deal to be able to evaluate than just, geez, now it's time. Let's trade Tina. We have 11 teams we can talk to and we'll send her, you know, wherever. So it's important to keep that in mind. Now, that said, the Liberty got some usable parts in return for Tina Charles. They got uh, additional picks in this draft. You know, at number nine, they're going to be able to get a talented player in this draft. This is not as deep a draft as 2018 or 2019, in my opinion, but it is certainly a deep enough draft that the number nine pick is someone who can help a team. Uh, I haven't projected to take Megan Walker. And if they end up getting Walker, you know, somebody who shoots the three ball extremely well, who played for Gina Oriema, that's somebody who can help them right away. And this is a team under Walt Hopkins that wants to take many more threes. But when you lose Tina, what you also lose is somebody who's taking a lot of the shots. And for a team that's trying to build with a window that's a little bit longer term, I mean, a lot longer term than what Washington is, because Washington is absolutely in win now mode. It gives you a chance to see something they haven't really seen yet, which is something like Amanda Zowie B as a number one option inside outside. Rebecca Allen getting 15, 20 shots. She is an elite shot maker in this league, I think. And giving her the opportunity to do it all the time uh, is going to be key. And UNESCO is somebody who excels at the pick and roll. We saw it time and time again with Satu Sabali and Ruthie Hebert at Oregon. So having her have the chance to do that with Zowie B, who, by the way, per synergy, third best in the lead as the pick and roll role man in terms of points per possession, is something that I think will absolutely make the Liberty a more efficient team next year. Now, do you see a situation where Ruthie Hebert falls to nine? Many people mm. have her going just outside of the top five, either six or or seven, do you think that we could see a reunion of the Oregon teammates in at Barclays Center this summer? I'll put it to you this way. I think if Ruthie's there at nine, I think the Liberty are going to give a real long, hard look at taking her there. You know, you think about, all right, who do they have already? They've got Zowie, who is a tremendously underrated player, by my view. Mm-hmm. They have Kia Stotes signed, and she is uh, in a full protection contract, which means that they're going to pay her 
whether she's on the team or not. And again, it, let's not lose sight of the fact she is a very talented defensive player. She's someone who can help the team, especially when she is at her best. And they've got Han Shu. Han Shu is just a year removed from being picked just outside of the first round. A six foot nine player with touch out to the three point line. I expect to see an expanded role for Han Shu this year as well. So that would make Ruthie the third or the fourth big on this team. Now they are still in talent collection mode. And mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that just as they have those four bids, they can't make trades around that and make deals accordingly. Uh, so I, I think Ruthie would be in the mix, but it's also worth remembering how much talent is already there on the Liberty roster. When you're talking about a, another piece that came through in this trade, Shatori Walker came had a hot mm -hmm. start to the season last year, kind of cooled off after that injury, really wasn't the same player since. What kind of value do you think the Liberty are getting in that pickup? I think significant value. Shatori Walker Kimbrough is a legit shooter. You know, the amount of time that she got to be a volume shooter in Washington was almost none because they had so much talent on that roster top to bottom. But I, I've been a fan of Shatori Walker Kimbrough's game since she was at University of Maryland. She is somebody who can absolutely play. She is a plus defender. So she's not somebody who hurts you at either end of the floor. She is absolutely a shot maker. There's a lot of overlap with her and Rebecca Allen, more perimeter defending than Rebecca Allen, who's a little bit more of a shot blocker on the defensive end. But Shatori Walker Kimbrough, whether they keep her or end up using her in another trade, is somebody who's absolutely got some value there. Now, I want to kind of take it bigger picture. Uh, Sabrina Ionescu, the think pieces have been out on her. Everyone and their brothers writing about her, what she means to the Liberty, what her pro career is going to be. What, in your opinion, does she bring to a team who's going into a new building and is really looking for a fresh start? There are two parts to this. One is Sabrina Ionescu is the woman for the moment. But the other part of this is the moment, right? It, you know, Diana Taurasi came out of school 16 years ago, and Diana Taurasi was ready to be the Michael Jordan. Uh, I know people at that time who talked about it in the WNBA. They said, all right, well, this is our Michael moment. And it didn't happen. And the reason it didn't happen had nothing to do with Diana Taurasi. It had to do with this was a moment in which you saw a real decline in sports media coverage of women's basketball. Mm -hmm. You saw newspapers cutting and cutting and cutting and where they were cutting first was women's sports. Mm -hmm. And so the number of people around to amplify when Diana Taurasi said that crazy thing, that trash talking thing were less and less and less. And so Taurasi's game didn't get amplified the way it should have. And really, it was a generational missed opportunity, right? Well, you now look at the amount of coverage that we've seen about the WNBA over the last yeah. couple of years and different outlets that are picking it up and different sports editors who were being forced to answer the question, why is it okay for you to ignore this professional league? And there is no answer for that. Right. There's no good answer for that whatsoever. And so the net result has been sometimes out of enthusiasm and sometimes begrudgingly more and more people are covering women's sports and giving it a greater percentage of the overall coverage. So you bring in someone like Sabrina Ionescu to New York, to a new building, to a franchise that is clearly investing on the marketing side as well, is mm -hmm. putting them in a real building, not the joke of a venue they were at the last two years, which was in no way major league quality. Mm -hmm. And it's really a perfect storm. And I think that's part of why 
so many people are so aggravated by the coronavirus, there are much bigger stakes, obviously, in the current global pandemic that we're facing. But it is also just this critical, perfect moment that everything seemed to be coming together. And to right. now have that delayed, I don't think denied, it's a matter of time till we get to the other side of it, but delayed is very frustrating for a lot of people involved. That's a good point. Uh, how, how do you see overall the uh, the move for the Liberty going? I mean, I watched firsthand the, the Nets go from New Jersey to Brooklyn mm -hmm. and, you know, uh, I, there wasn't a fan base in tow, let's say, you know what I mean? One of the reasons right. they left was the fact that you could walk up in, you know, 2001 and buy a ticket to the finals. Um, yeah. You know, so that was part of the reason they left, but I've, been a Brooklyn season ticket holder from day one. Mm -hmm. And the one thing that's really clear, even though there's, you know, people in the seats, interest in the team, interest from the media, anytime another local team, a, a New York Knicks, a Philadelphia Sixers, even a Celtics, even a big star comes, even LeBron James comes, Nets fans are, uh, you know, yelled out of the building. Like they, they really don't stand a chance. Mm -hmm. How do you see uh, pre-existing Liberty fans taking the move? And do you think they're going to join them in Brooklyn? I mean, it's a great question. And I think some of what you described, I, I think there are similarities, but there are also clear differences, right? Yes. And so I, I, was, I was there opening night in Brooklyn. I've, I've, covered, I've covered that team uh, for years as well. And something that I've noticed is it's gradual, but it is changing. It, it is, is not... 95.5 Knicks yeah. fans anymore the way it was. It's getting there. Yeah, I mean, it, it is. And, yeah. and, it, and it was always going to, because like you said, you weren't taking, such that it was the fan base in New Jersey was never going to move whole hog over to Brooklyn. It was right. going to take a generation of building a new team. And they tried yes. to, you know, uh, fast forward that right. with Darren Williams and Joe Johnson. And we don't have to get into <laughs> How that you know, you want to do a Billy King segment here? <laughs> that sounds fun. I love covering Billy. <laughs> Billy was a great quote, but yeah, that was that didn't go so well. And I, I don't have to tell you. So, so the point being that Brooklyn had to gradually grow a fan base, right? Yes. Well, with the Liberty, they were drawing ten thousand fans right up until they left Madison right, Square right, right. Garden. They didn't leave Madison Square Garden because they weren't drawing. They were among the best drawing teams in the WNBA. They sure. left. New York City because Jim Dolan woke up one day and decided he didn't want it anymore. Right. And so said, all right, we're going to banish you to Westchester. We're going to put you on for sale, but we're not even going to have a buyer in place. So we're going to give up all our leverage from day one. And because I've decided I want more journey concert dates in July and August, you know, and so, you know, throw away 20 years of history yeah. in the process. That's just right. flat out what happened. And there are a lot of people who were rightly concerned that, that could have been the end of women's basketball professionally in New York. Because wow. if Joe Sy doesn't come along to buy that team, where are they playing? I mean, I, I had this conversation over two years with, you know, maybe a hundred people. Because yeah. you, you, would you play Carneseco Arena in Queens? Mm -hmm. Maybe. Yeah. Then 6,800 people. And it's not easy to get to. You know, play. Wow. I love Rose Hill Gym more than <laughs> right. even being on the planet. But you, yeah. there's 3,200 people. Sure. And so the choices get pretty slim. And so having the Nets and having Joe Sy behind this team and having Barclays Center as a place for them to play is a really big deal. And now 
those 10,000 fans, and I, I talked to so many of them through these years, you know, <laughs> there were a couple of thousand who made that trek to Westchester. There right. were people who said, you know, I sat next to people who talked to me about, I'm coming for Katie Smith, hmm. you know, I, and, and I'm mad as hell as, uh, as to the way the Liberty have been treated and the way the fans yeah. have been treated, but I'll come for Katie Smith. Well, now everyone who cared about professional women's basketball in New York, it's easier to get to, and you can tap into that emerging Brooklyn Nets fan base at the same time. It feels to me like a perfect storm demographically for where this team ought to be going. Yeah. Be a great number one pick, beautiful logo. Mm-hmm. You don't have to go to Midtown anymore and eat Sabaros, whatever the hell happens there. Yeah. I think it's great. I'm looking forward to it. There, there's, I agree that the food options are better <laughs> in and around Barclays, but you'd be surprised. You'd be surprised. I mean, all I know, the only pizza you can get within Madison Square Garden is either Dollar Slice or Sabaros. There's one. And I know I, there's an artichoke pizza two blocks from Barclays Center. Yes, that's ah. true. Listen, <laughs> and the food in Barclays yeah, is onion superior as well. I love the chicken and rice bowl you can get. Get I a have, Junior's I, Cheesecake. I was just saying, I've been known to treat myself to Junior's <laughs> Cheesecake on special occasions, start of the playoffs, when the Liberty play there. You know, I, love it. I, I will I will be sure to do it. But it, it's it's a great fit. Yeah. Well, I'm soon going to be getting the pitches for season tickets, so maybe <laughs> right. I'll buy a package. Yeah. Uh, listen, that team is not to be missed, and that's before you even get into the fact that Walt Hopkins, their new coach, really smart guy, he's going to have them playing a lot like, if, you know, if, for an NBA reference point, a lot like the Houston Rockets. You know, okay. uh, this is going to be a three-and-around-the-rim heavy team, Fun. and they're built that way, and they're, there's a, even their veterans are young. You know, right, right. Marina Johannes is 25. Zowie B is 26. Rebecca Allen's 27. Like, this is not a, um, a an old team by any stretch of the imagination, and, and I expect them to play like it. And that's a system I assume you couldn't have run with Tina Charles still there. You could have, but it's different. You, right. you would have required – listen, it's not that different than what the Mystics are going to be running. But Tina with the Mystics, and we uh, media talked to Mike Tebow yesterday about this, the head coach and GM of the Mystics. He wants Tina to go back to 2012 Tina, uh, mm-hmm. the, the one who won the MVP with the Connecticut Sun, and be an around-the-rim finisher. Now, would Tina have agreed to do that in New York, or is Tina agreeing to do that because she can go win a championship in 2020 in D.C.? Only Tina Charles can answer that question. Sure, sure. Howard, I just want to wrap up here by you know just running through – the teams that will be front and center on mm. Friday night and kind of hearing your opinion on what the biggest need is and uh, who you think they'll take early on. I want to start with Atlanta. What do you think is their biggest need and who do you think they'll take at number four? So those questions happen to have the same answer, which is very good for Atlanta, right? Mm. They they need a point guard. They need somebody to be the heir apparent and successor to Renee Montgomery, who's tremendously talented, but who is slowing down and uh, is is somebody who can mentor and ultimately pass the torch. And so at four, I believe they will have an opportunity to get Kennedy Carter, who's somebody who probably has the widest variance of anyone in this draft. Kennedy Carter is a generational talent. Kennedy Carter also did not lift Texas A&M by herself into Final Four contention, and that is a red flag for a lot of people. Mm. Uh, I'm a believer in Kennedy Carter, incidentally, primarily because of what I saw on the Barclays Center floor four years ago. She was in the Jordan Classic as a senior in high school. It's an exhibition game. People were playing like it was an exhibition game. 
there was one player who was playing full force, 100%, right to the final buzzer, and that was Kennedy Carter. And that really left an impression with me. That's a good indicator. Next up, the New York Liberty. Obviously, we've talked about their needs, who they're going to take number one. But do you think that there's any chance that they package picks 9 and 12 together to try to to move up here? Entirely possible. You know, there are opportunities to be able to, like you were talking about, with someone like Ruthie Hebert. Um, There are definitely players that they find interesting who are going to get picked further up in the draft. However, what you might also see them do is draft overseas players and stash them. Uh, you know, it, it's an opportunity to be able to develop talent over, say, a three, four, five year window, which is what they're thinking about, rather than being absolute best on draft night. But I do think the Liberty are dedicated to adding talent beyond just Sabrina Iniescu on Friday night. Let's head to Dallas now. The Wings have picks two, five, and seven. They told you guys at the high post hoops that they're looking for more playmakers. Who do you think they'll take with these first two picks in the top five? And what are their biggest needs? So the trade that has always made sense to me, it hasn't happened yet. We'll see if it happens by Friday night, is for them to go and package five and seven for three mm. and pop up. You get Kennedy Carter. You make her your one. You put her next to Arike Ogumbawale, uh, who gets to play off the ball a little more, makes her more of a true two. Uh, you combine those with Mariah Jefferson, who is an elite true point guard. You could even run three guard sets. You know, Brian Adler could do a lot of interesting, creative things and make that deal with Indiana, potentially if it's there. However, I don't think it's there in part because Indiana at three really likes Lauren Cox. Hmm. And so that means, all right, Dallas goes and gets Satu Sabali, who has a real high ceiling at two. She's someone who makes a lot of sense. She's a very Brian Adler type player. Five and seven. I think Bella Allery, if she's available at five, has to be the choice. I think Bella Allery is a stretch four who might end up being even better than Satu Sabali or Lauren Cox. When you look at the arc of what she's become over her four years in college, in fact, that she's still growing and developing as a player. She's someone who's going to help somebody and I think has an all-star ceiling in her future. The Phoenix Mercury added Skylar Diggins Smith this offseason. They're coming in at number 10. Who do you like them to take? I think Phoenix is going to go for somebody who is going to help them win right away. And I think there are a number of different ways they can go. But if you think about what Phoenix is right now, they're a win now team. You add Skylar Diggins Smith, sure. But you add her to a core that features Brittany Griner, an absolutely elite top five player in this league, and Diana Tarazi, who you just don't know how many years she has left. And so you are, and I'm thrilled that Jim Pittman is doing this from a best of all observer perspective, maximizing every last bit of Diana Tarazi's career. So exactly who's going to be available at 10 is going to depend so much on what comes before. But I could easily see them taking a shooter. I could see them taking an additional point guard. You could see them go crystal danger danger field in this spot. So you have a shooter and somebody who's able to fill in at point guard as well, give Tarazi some additional time off the ball and fill the loss of Brian January, which is not insignificant as well. Coming in at number six, the Minnesota Lynx. Uh, interesting offseason for them. Does a Ruthie Hubbard fall past six here? It's a really good question. She'd be a real logical person to back up Sylvia Fowles, and you could see her helping that team quite a bit. Uh, you could obviously see them add someone like a Ty Harris. If Ty Harris is still there at six, she's somebody with 
real significant in-game experience running an elite offense as she did. And she's certainly been well coached under Don Staley. Cheryl Reeve knows what Don Staley brings as well. You could also see Minnesota surprise. You know, Cheryl Reeve is somebody who likes to play chess. And so you don't really put anything past her up to and including moving up. And, and here's what I'll say. Knowing Cheryl Reeve, knowing the homework she does, she also has a pick at 16. She'll get value out of pick 16. And finally, who is or what is the one move that could surprise people on Friday night? The one move that could surprise people, maybe, and it shouldn't surprise people, is how high Stella Johnson of Ryder gets picked. I had a chance to get a live look at Stella Johnson during the year. She was the nation's leading scorer. Her defense might be better than her offense. She is 5'11". She has significant wingspan. She is somebody who can go into a rotation, help a team right away. And that's going to matter. That's somebody who's got a real high basketball IQ. Her coach in college, Lynn Milligan, is pounding the table for her, and rightly so. I, I just absolutely think she is somebody who's going to help people, and that will surprise people to say, oh, Ryder, Ryder University? Yes, Ryder University. Do not sleep on the math, people. I got to ask it to anybody who comes on. Do you have a WNBA Mount Rushmore, and who is on it? I have actually written that story. And yeah. instead of, yes, and instead of, instead of naming it myself, ah, I got to go back and look. Uh, instead of naming it myself, <laughs> I asked who is the your... major player. So the yeah. current yeah. WNBA? Yeah. All right. So Maya Moore ought to be on there, but she's not because she's right. not currently yeah, in the yeah, WNBA. Right. I think you obviously have to put the reigning MVP and champion in Elena Deladon on that Mount Rushmore. You have to put... Brianna Stewart on that spot, given that she won in 2018, given that she was the MVP in 2018, and you don't lose that spot due to an Achilles injury. I, mm. I flat out refuse to do it. <laughs> and then I will pair them with Diana Tarazi, all-time leading scorer, still in the league, and you know somebody who is tremendous both in terms of quotes and in terms of shooting. And well, you got to put Sue Bird on there, uh, the league's all-time greatest point guard, and, you know, pride of Syos in New York, we're putting Sue Bird on there as well. Love it. Well, you can check out his work at the High Post Hoops. I mean, he's he's the best doing it right now. It's Howard Mengel, everybody. Howard, thank you can so I, much for the time. Can I, can I give one more plug? Is that okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah please, of course. Please. We also have something called the Nine Newsletter, T-H-E-I-X. Uh, the Nine is in Title Nine. Five different women's sports. We cover it every day. I've got tr tremendously talented reporters in soccer, tennis, uh, golf and hockey as well. Five different women's sports every single day. Check out the nine newsletter. We're building sports media infrastructure there every day. Well, thanks for the great work you're doing out there. We appreciate, I appreciate it. it, guys. This was yeah. this was great. <laughs> Plenty of ways to get in contact with the show. You can email us at the Tune Up Podcast. There's two P's in there, by the way, the, for those of you that have been trying. The Tune Up Podcast at gmail.com. You can follow him on Twitter at Benny Horowitz one. Number one in your minds, number one in your hearts, number one on Twitter. I am at Denny underscore Gallagher. Benny, you got anything else? You know how it goes, man. Everybody take care of everybody out there, and everybody love everybody. Semi-Pro, still on Netflix. Check it out. This is the <laughs> Tune Up.